It's September 22nd, 2017. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is episode one of my show. I thought I'd kick things off with one of my favorite topics, and that's what's called the question of political obligation. So think about government. Think about the things that government, that the state demands of us. It asks a lot, and it asks a lot of things that are rather different from what other people in our own lives, friends, family members, colleagues, other people in the community get to ask or demand of us. I think the state asks really three things. First, it asks for, or we could say demands, our obedience. It says that I get to issue you commands, I get to tell you to do things, and you have to do them. You have to obey me. And in fact, if you don't obey me, I can either force you to obey, I can compel you to do what I told you to, or I can punish you. I can lock you up. I can, in extreme circumstances, even kill you if you disobey. Second, government asks for non-competition. So it says, yes, I get to issue commands, and no one else does either. This is the territory I control. These are the borders of my domain. And if you're in here, if you're a citizen, if you're subject to my laws, subject to my authority, not only do you have to obey, but you're not allowed to set up competing institutions. So, I mean, simple terms, you can't rebel. You can't attempt to create a new state within the boundaries of the one you already live within. And third, the state or the government, and I'm going to use these terms largely interchangeably in this conversation, Third, the government asks for money. It says, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to provide services, and I'm going to enforce the laws that I've created, and you are going to pay me to do it because, of course, it takes money to have police. It takes money to build roads. It takes money to have a military. It takes money to provide Social Security, and the state gets that money from its citizens, its subjects, so the state can tax us. So the question of political obligation is, Are these three things, namely obedience, non-competition, and money, are these legitimate? In other words, are these things the state can ask us for and that we as citizens have a moral obligation to comply with? Because think about it, if if I, as as a colleague of yours or a friend of yours, were to demand obedience, demand non-competition, demand money, in most cases you'd look at me like I was crazy. You'd say, you can ask me for those things, but if I don't want to provide them, at the very least you're not allowed to then lock me up. I can't, I can't come up to you, demand that you follow whatever dictates I say, and then if you fail to comply, lock me in your basement. So, so the question of political obligation is how do these particular powers of the state that, that it claims arise? What makes the state different? Typically speaking, theories of this, because this is obviously an important question, without this government really can't get off the ground. So people for thousands of years, going all the way back to Plato, have offered theories of political obligation, and most of them fall into one of five kinds. First, there's the notion of consent. Then there's what gets called gratitude. Then fair play. Then association. And then kind of a grab bag that I will call natural duty. So let's start with consent, which I think is in many ways the most familiar theory and the one that probably comes to mind first if you pressed people on these issues. So consent is the social contract that we might recognize from John Locke or Thomas Hobbes or from the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. It's the idea that we in some pre-governmental state got together and said, you know, it would be better off if we had a government to prevent protect us and to provide us with services. And so we're going to sign over some of our liberties. We're going to sign over some of our rights, give this thing power over us. 
the particular powers of obedience, non-competition, and taxation in exchange for the benefits it will provide. So we sign this social contract and the state comes into being. Now, obviously, this didn't happen to any of us in our lifetimes. I mean, I didn't sign a social contract because the government that I was born into, namely the United States, existed before I got here. But there might be certain activities that we could undertake that look a lot like a social contract. You know, So we call these the explicit theories of consent or social contracts. The first of these would be becoming a citizen. When you enter a new country and you choose to become a citizen, you take an oath. You agree to be bound by the terms. You agree to follow the laws of the land. You agree not to rebel. And you agree to pay your taxes. And so this oath looks maybe like explicit consent to a social contract. But again, most of us are simply citizens of the country we were born into, and we didn't go through the actions of becoming a citizen. So another way we might think about it would be voting. When you vote, you go and put your name next to an option, your preferred choice, but with the understanding that if you win, you're certainly going to obey because that's what you wanted in the first place. But if you lose by participating in the process, you've agreed to be bound by the outcome. So voting looks a little bit like signing up for the social contract, at least this particular social contract we're voting on and the, the circumstances surrounding it by way of choosing to participate in a process. But again, most of us don't vote. I mean, certainly in most elections, the majority of people don't cast a ballot, and and a lot of the people who live in the country can't vote, whether because they are felons, we, we strip the right to vote from felons, um, or simply because they're not old enough, and yet the social contract certainly still applies to them. They're still expected to obey the law, they're expected not to rebel, not to compete against the government, and they're expected to pay their taxes. So we need some other way of getting to consent. And these we consider implicit. So explicit consent ideas say you have agreed because you explicitly said you were going to. You took actions that were themselves signs of conscious consent to the terms of the contract. Implicit says more you've behaved in certain ways, and by behaving in those certain ways, you've indicated that you're consenting even if you haven't come out and said it. So the first of these, and the one that certainly applies to most of us, would be living within the borders. This is, you know, America, love it or leave it. So by continuing to live here and choosing not to pack up and move to a different country, I have indicated that I'm willing to put up with, at the very least, the the rules of the United States government. I'm I'm made myself party to this contract by simply not leaving. If I really didn't like it, I could go somewhere else. The second way to think about this would be using services. Uh, this plays out in our normal lives. Take, for instance, a restaurant. So I go into a restaurant. I sit down at the table. The waiter gives me a menu. I order. I eat the food. Have I agreed to the social contract in this case, which says I'm going to pay for the meal that I've just consumed? The answer is probably yes, even though the waiter didn't at the beginning of the meal say, upon ordering, do you agree to pay for the meal at the end, to pay the check when it arrives? We don't go through that process, but it's simply assumed that by the act of sitting down and eating, you have indicated consent to the terms of the contract. So does this work? Do, do these theories, whether explicit or implicit, of consent get us to a government that can legitimately demand obedience, non-competition, and money? And I say legitimately because, of course, any personal organization can demand these things. The question is, are they then in the moral right 
to enforce their demands, or are we in the moral wrong when we fail to comply with their demands? So we'll start with explicit consent. Um, I don't think explicit consent works for a number of reasons. Um, first off, it's barred to a lot of us. So as I said, felons are stripped of the right to vote. We, we don't allow people to participate um, and then say they are still bound. And then even those of us who say do vote can get in a situation where we're only voting defensively. So this looks kind of like take a mugger. A mugger comes up to you, he holds a gun to your head, and he says your money or your life. Now if you choose to give him your money, we don't really say you consented to that outcome, that you consented to then give him your money um, because it wasn't it wasn't a genuine choice. Um, you you were only picking the least worst option. In a, in a better world, you wouldn't have been mugged in the first place. So if we vote defensively in that way, it's not clear that we've necessarily consented to the outcome. And also, while explicit consent might work, it's not clear it works to this extent, the same scope uh, that the government demands. So questions like how long does your consent last and what exactly have you consented to? You know, if I agree to support the United States government, have I then agreed for the rest of my life? Is it possible for me to back out? Um, if And then to what? So one of the things the government does is change the rules of the game quite often, uh, usually without my consent. So they might they might change the rules in a way that I don't like. They might raise taxes to a level that I don't find acceptable. But when that happens, I don't then have the opportunity to reevaluate the social contract. I'm considered to still be bound. And that doesn't look like situations that we find ourselves in with regard to contracts outside of the government. If I'm in a business contract and one party to the contract changes the terms, they say my landlord decides arbitrarily to triple my rent, courts don't uphold that. That's You violated the terms of the contract. So why does the social contract get to be different in this regard? And then finally, of course, the problem with the explicit consent to the social contract is we simply don't have many real cases of this happening. Most governments don't have a contract that anyone signed on to. So turn now to implicit. Does implicit work better? Well, I think the first part with implicit is that really this – I touched on this a bit with the notion of your money or your life, but it needs to be a genuine choice that your indication that your behaviors indicate some degree of consent to so the the philosopher david hume in an essay called on the social contract he was talking about this particular issue and he wrote can we seriously say that a poor peasant or artisan has a free choice to leave his country when he knows no foreign language or manners and lives from day to day by the small wages which he acquires you know, if you're a peasant, you're a poor person living in a country, even if you really don't like what that country's up to, you don't like the rules that the government has forced upon you, you don't really have an option to leave. It's awfully costly. You know, if I were to leave the United States because I don't much like it here, um, I don't like the government, say, it would mean leaving behind my family, my friends, my job. Um, it might mean leaving behind my very livelihood going somewhere where I don't know the language, I don't know the culture, those are extremely costly. And so it starts looking less like a genuine choice, which means that I really, by remaining behind, say, I haven't really consented because I didn't have another option. And implicit consent doesn't answer the question we raised earlier about length or scope. Um, if by staying in this country, does that mean that I have implicitly 
consented to everything the government might do, no matter what? Is it possible that the government might do things that go beyond the scope of even this implicit agreement where it's, it's no longer acceptable even if I refuse to leave? And, and finally, on consent, there's an interesting problem that even if we set all that aside, even if we say that there is a social contract um, and that we did all agree to it either explicitly or implicitly, at least in the United States, a strong case can be made that the United States government has explicitly repudiated that social contract. It has refused to uphold its side of it. So there's a court, Supreme Court case called Town of Castle Rock v. Gonzalez. And this is a case where a woman had a restraining order on her ex-husband. She, she feared he, that he would be violent. And one day he came and he picked up her kids. Um, he took them. And she called the Castle Rock Police Department. She said, you know, these this man is is dangerous. Um, and they they refused to do anything about it. They said, you know, we're, we're not going to deal with it right now. Um, and the man took her children and eventually he killed them and killed himself and so she sued and said you know I had this training order and you had an obligation to protect me and to protect my children from this man and the Supreme Court said no it said you have no right to be protected by the government and I mean if if the social contract is anything if the the stories of it you know we live in this state of nature where our lives according to Thomas Hobbes or what he said are solitary poor nasty brutish and short the very least the reason that we enter into a social contract is to protect our lives to to have the government protect us from violence and here we have an instance where the highest court in the land is saying no you know the the United States government if they want to protect you they want to protect your life sure they'll do it but you don't really have a right to expect them to. And if that's true, then I don't really see any social contract remaining after that. It, it looks more like, you know, I've, I've signed an agreement with you to mow your lawn in exchange for $50, and I mow your lawn, and you say, yeah, but I don't really feel like paying you. When that happens, we don't really have a contract anymore. You've, you've violated it. So consent, and this will be a common theme throughout all of these theories that we discuss, uh, consent, when we look at it in our own lives, certainly can give rise to obligations. We can think of situations where we consent to things and then we have some moral obligation to fulfill them, but consent doesn't appear to get us specifically to the powers of the state, namely obedience, and especially obedience in this very broad sense, non-competition and taxation. Let's turn then to our second theory, fair play. Fair play theory says, in short, if we benefit from a cooperative scheme, we need to abide by its rules or else we're free riding. So put this another way, in 1955 in an essay called Are There Any Natural Rights, the legal philosopher H.L.A. Hart wrote, when a number of persons conduct any joint enterprise according to rules and thus restrict their liberty, those who have submitted to those restrictions when required have a right to a similar submission from those who have benefited by their submission. So I'll unpack that a bit. The idea here is that if people get together and they give something up, um, they, they work together so they give up time and money, say, to benefit all of us, to benefit themselves and everyone else, then there's an expectation that if I'm going to partake of those benefits, I need to pay them back in a similar way. So we can imagine the community decides to get together and build a playground. Um, and 
everyone pitches in, they, they pay for the lumber and the nails, they take many of their weekends and construct this thing, and I sit it all out. I refuse to pitch in any money, I refuse to build anything, I refuse to help out in any way, and then I take my kids to play on this playground. It seems like I'm free riding, you know? I These people did something, it was costly for them, and I did nothing. Uh, and and then when I take advantage of their labor, I have I've done something wrong. I'm I'm free riding. I'm taking advantage of them. And so the question is, does the state work that way? And we you can think about the state a little bit like this. Like we all, you know, we pay our taxes, um, we obey the law, we do all sorts of things that are, in a sense, costly or freedom restricting. And if there's benefits from that that all of us partake in, it seems like all of us ought to similarly sacrifice. You know, you don't, you don't want a free ride on the work and sacrifice of others. Robert Nozick, the famous 20th century philosopher, um, in in a book he wrote called Anarchy, State, and Utopia, though he, he questioned this. He questioned this intuition of seeing government as a form of fair play. He did this by way of his community radio counter-argument. So the community radio counter-argument I live in a neighborhood with, call it, 365 residents, uh, and all of our houses are around the central hill. And in the hill, at the top of the hill, is a tower. And the community, perhaps before I moved in or without my participation, the community decided what they were going to do is every day a different member was going to go up into that tower. There's speakers up there. They were going to spend the day reading the news playing music, telling jokes, and so on, basically putting on a, a radio program for the enjoyment of everyone else. Um, and, and let's just say that I can't, these, these speakers are fairly loud, I, you know, even if I close all my windows, I'm still going to hear them. So I have, I have listened to many days, many months of the community radio, and in fact, most of the time I've enjoyed it. It's been, you know, it's, it's good to hear the news, and the jokes have been funny, and the music, you know, shows remarkably good taste. And then my day comes along. And they say, okay, now it's your turn. And I say, I, you know, either I'm not feeling well or I've got other things to do. I just, I'm really not that keen on climbing that tower and spending my day reading and playing music. And Nozick says, well, have we, you know, do we have an obligation to do it? Do we have an obligation to go and take our turn at the community radio? And his answer is no. And the reason it's no is because he thinks that in order for benefits to create this kind of obligation for repayment, they need to be accepted and not merely received. So you need to have consciously had an option to not accept the benefits, to not partake in them. And then if you had that choice and you chose to partake in them, you chose to accept them, then yeah, we can say that you have obligations for repayment. But but merely receiving them, i.e. not having a choice one way or another, doesn't give rise to obligations because you couldn't have chosen differently. So in this case with the community radio, yes, I got some enjoyment from it, sure. But had I been given the choice and said, look, you know, if you want to receive this, you're going to have to spend the day up there. Um, but if you don't, you can choose not to hear the radio and then you won't have to do the day. I would have chosen not to hear the radio. You know, it's it's not it's not worth it to me. Then in that case, if I listen to the radio, it sounds like I've accepted those benefits. But in the other case, I've you know, if I didn't have the choice, I merely received them. And Nozick says that 
merely receiving doesn't really give rise to obligations under fair play. This is when we turn to politics, when we turn to the question of political obligation, we have to ask, you know, which kind of benefits are state benefits? You know, let's let's just stipulate that I benefit in all sorts of ways from the government. People might disagree with that, but we don't have to get into that right now. So I benefited from the government, but are they benefits that I accepted or are they benefits that I merely received? I think in most cases, the state benefits are ones that I have received. You know, I don't really have much of a choice. Like, yes, I could opt out of the public schools, say, but it's harder to opt out of the roads or police protection or military protection. These are benefits, sure, but they're benefits I didn't have much of a choice about. And in fact, to, to make matters worse, in most cases, it's not just that I don't have a choice about accepting these benefits, but the state actively cuts off others from providing me with alternatives. So it's not just that it sets up its own community radio station, but that it prevents me and my similarly minded neighbors from setting up our own and then doesn't allow me to turn down the benefits. So they, this seems like the state fits within Nozick's counterexample to fair play. But more broadly, I think we can we can question whether the state itself is even a cooperative scheme. So remember, if we go back, that if we benefit from a cooperative scheme, we need to abide by the rules or else we're free riding was our definition of fair play. Uh, or in HLA Hearts, he says, you know, if persons conduct any joint enterprise. So is the state really a cooperative scheme? Is it really a joint enterprise? Again, I don't know that it is. I mean, it's not, it doesn't look like the, the United States government or the government of any of the particular states or even your city doesn't look like the community getting together and doing the radio station or building the playground. It has its own employees. Um, it has its own rules, its own institutions. Like the, the only way that we really participate in it for the most part, um, that we sacrifice, say, is by paying taxes. But how many of us even do that really voluntarily? You know, if you didn't have to pay taxes, if the state lowered its taxes, would you keep paying the full amount? Would you keep paying what you did before? Probably not. You know, the state doesn't look like a cooperative scheme. It looks more like a third-party institution, a corporation, say, that all of us pay into and then get something out of. And that, that may be great, but, you know, we don't think of, like, our grocery store or Comcast Cable, who provides me with television service as a cooperative scheme just because I pay a bill every month to it. Um, and then e even if we accept that, so let's, let's accept that the state is in fact a cooperative scheme, and let's accept that I accepted the benefits and didn't merely receive them, so we get around Nozick's community radio counter-argument. What types of obligations flow from that. Because remember, what we're talking about here is not just a general sense of fair play of repayment, but the specific obligations of obedience, non-competition, and money. Here, fair play doesn't seem to work either. If, if my neighbors build the playground, um, maybe I need to pitch in the next time or help clean it up or help revitalize it down the road, but I certainly don't have to obey the commands of my neighbors going forward, you know, and I, I certainly am not prohibited from setting up another playground elsewhere in town. So that doesn't look much like political obligation. It looks like obligation, sure, but it doesn't look like political obligation. We haven't yet justified those three core powers of the state. 
Consent doesn't work then, and fair play doesn't appear to work, but we've got three more theories. Maybe one of them will get us further along. The next one is the theory known as gratitude. Gratitude is a theory that attempts to get around the accept versus received problem of fair play. And it does this by making a relatively simple argument that says, look, we've all gained from the state. You know, we've gained security, we've gotten goods, we've gotten services, and so we should feel like we're in the state's debt. We should then feel like we should oh, we should repay that debt in one way or another. So unlike consent, gratitude is not about something that we individually choose, but is instead about how we ought to feel given our circumstances. And unlike fair play, it's not dependent on accepting versus receiving distinction. So if we benefited, even against our will, we still have some degree of debt. You can think of this like, imagine Chewbacca, uh, the, the Star Wars movie coming out next year, I guess it is, will presumably give us the backstory of how Han Solo and Chewbacca got together. But if it's anything like the stories that we've heard in novels and comic books over the years, it has something to do with Han Solo saving Chewbacca's life. Um, and then the, the Wookiees, the alien race that Chewbacca is a member of, um, have this notion of a life debt where they say, if you saved my life, then I have to dedicate my life to serving you. And this this is an instance of receiving, but not necessarily accepting the benefits, right? So Chewbacca owes this debt, even though he probably didn't have a choice in the moment to say, no, 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 you know, don't, don't save me because I don't want to be bound to serve you. Um, or to bring it back to earth in more grounded terms, you know, if you're in a car accident and you're unconscious and someone risks their own safety to save you, to drag you from the wreckage, uh, you didn't, you weren't in a position to accept those benefits at the time. You weren't conscious at all. But we'd still say you're you're in that person's debt, right? You owe them something. Like they, you know, they saved your life, and that's that's not small potatoes. Um, so here, gratitude does seem to give rise to obligations, to a sense of being in another's debt. The the question, as the question always is, is does that get us to the specifics of political obligation, namely to obedience, non-competition, and money, um, and the authority of specifically the government. So the first question we might ask in probing the gratitude theory is, why do we need to repay with obedience? You know, if that person saved me from the car accident, there are lots of things I might do for that person, but I'm not I'm not obligated to obey all of his commands. If he makes all sorts of demands of me, I don't have to fulfill them. That's not how that sort of debt gets repaid. And so then why would it be the case with the state? Why would it only apply to the state that obedience arises from this kind of gratitude-based debt? Second, the, the state actively prevents others from helping us. Um, if you go back to the, again, the, the car accident example, it's not as simple as I was in the car accident and government showed up and helped me. Um, government also prevented anyone else who was at the scene from helping me. You know, this is the non-competition. Um, and, and if government did a worse job than those other people did, then I'm certainly not in its debt because it's wronged me. You know, if, if, there's a, if I'm in the car and I'm unconscious and a competent paramedic shows up and they're going to help me, but then government shows up just after, not knowing anything about this, yanks me out and breaks both my legs in the process and then says, now you're in my debt, 
um, that doesn't, you know, I, I have every right to be angry to say, no, this person could have done a better job. I could have been safe and had both my legs working. Um, so if if government is worse than the alternatives, then that makes the gratitude account even more difficult to see as a justification for obedience, non-competition, and money. And finally, gratitude is not a terribly strong ground for obligation because, in fact, it, it reduces to something like, if the state's good for me, I'll support it. If it isn't, I won't. Now, that's not typically how the state thinks about things. It doesn't say, you know, you can assess how good of a job I'm doing and then you can pay your taxes if you think it came out positive. Um, it says, no, you know, no matter what, you, you're obligated to obey me, you're obligated to support me. Um, and gratitude certainly doesn't seem to get us to such a high bar. That means we go to our next one, association. Association is the we're all Americans theory of political obligation. So you as a citizen are simply part of this thing we call America. And being part of it, being an American, means obeying the laws. It means not competing. It means paying your taxes. So fair play and gratitude are about something we've done or something that's happened to us. Association is instead about who we are as people. So having political obligations just is part of what it means to be a member of this political community. I think association is in a lot of ways the most troubling of the theories. So first, it, it assumes that the state is like other associations because there are certainly other associations I can be a member of that give rise to obligations. If I'm a member of a family, say, I have obligations to my parents, to my siblings, to my children. You know, I have to... Some, I mean, in some cases, actively obey them um, or provide them with support, and to not do so would be wrong. But is the state like those other associations? Is the state like a family? I mean, I, I certainly don't hold any ill will towards my fellow citizens, but I don't think of them the same way that I think about my parents or my wife or my children. I just don't have that kind of relationship, and it would be awfully odd if I did. But set that aside because I think there's an even more troubling objection. Namely, if community determines obligation, i.e. you're obligated to obey the rules of the community, obey the rules of the government, just because you're a member of it, then it would appear that we are obligated to obey no matter how bad the community is, no matter how bad those rules are, because terrible rules are still the terrible rules of your community. Um, and so we have really no out you're, there's there's no line that the government can cross that would strip us of our obligations if the associational account is correct. And it's important to to admit, I think, that our feelings of association can be misleading, that they can be to some extent illegitimate or improperly cultivated by those who would seek power over us. Probably the clearest example of this would be cults. Cult members are indoctrinated into thinking of the cult as family and into thinking of the leadership of the cult as legitimate and holding power over them. And I'm not saying that the state, that the United States government is a cult, but it certainly undertakes acts to promote itself as an authority figure, to promote a sense of belonging. I mean, I, I live in Washington, D.C., and I'm surrounded by these imposing buildings of marble done in a classical style that are meant to make me see the institutions of government as powerful and imposing uh, and awe-inspiring. You know, when you go to 
court, the judge is dressed severely in black, and he sits high above you and looks down as an authority figure. You know, the motorcades that rumble through blocking traffic are a sign of power, and this is all this is all conscious on the part of government. You know, it's it's trying to make itself look grand and important and significant and larger than all of us. And so I think at the very least, we should have some degree of skepticism about our feelings of association as part of government and question them, not just immediately accept the the, the gut instinct to obey as coming from a well-grounded place. That takes care of our four core theories, namely consent, fair play, gratitude, and association. And none of them appear to work. All of them appear to give rise to obligations in one way or another. But none seem to give rise to the specific obligations the state thinks it can place on us, namely obedience, non-competition, and money. But there are a handful of other minor theories that we might see as stopgaps, as ways to get us there. And they all fall under the heading, as I said before, of what I call natural duty. So natural duty accounts say that we have a duty to do what the state says to obey it because of some other moral requirement, some other moral requirement that we operate under that in this case the outcome of which happens to be to support the state. Uh, and there are three of these worth discussing right now, namely utilitarian accounts, uh, what I'll call a duty to obey just institutions, and finally, when the commands of the state align with pre-existing moral obligations. So utilitarian account says that we have a duty to maximize happiness. That's that's the basics of a libertarian moral theory is that the right action in any given circumstance is the one that creates the most happiness. If I have to choose what to do, Step one is to look at all the options in front of me, measure how much happiness, how much utility will be created by each across people. So I measure my own utility, yes, but also the utility of everyone else who might in some way be impacted by my actions, and then pick the one that creates the most overall utility. And so if we look at that from within the political obligation sphere, a utilitarian account would say something like, Obeying the state, so complying with it and not competing with it and paying it taxes, maximizes overall utility of the citizenry. That if you routinely refuse to obey the law or if you stop paying your taxes or if you attempt to rebel, that's going to make people less happy than they are now. It maybe creates more violence. It creates more chaos. It reduces the number of services that all of us have access to. Um, and so what you need to do as a good utilitarian is obey the state, even if you don't really have an obligation to do so by nature of the state's authority, as the prior four theories we discussed would have us do. Um, the The problem with that one is that first, like, like the, similar to the gratitude account, it says that we only really need to obey the state when it maximizes utility. And we can all think of plenty of examples where state actions, either individual or on a much larger scale, don't at all maximize utility, whether my own utility personally or the utility or happiness of the citizens in general. And if that's the case, whether this was, say, the, the imposition of slavery um, or segregation in the South 
or the the war on drugs right now, that the utilitarian account would then say, well, we have an obligation in that case to actively disobey, to thwart the state in its efforts to do these things that are harming people. So that doesn't seem like a strong ground for obligation. And it's also the case that this isn't really a theory of obligation because the, the important thing to remember about a theory of obligation, a political obligation, is that it's a theory of the, the nature of the state. It says that I owe these things to government. I owe it obedience. I owe it non-competition. I owe it taxation because it has that authority over me. Utilitarianism doesn't get us to that. It's not quite obligation. Instead, it's just prudence. It says, look, it's good for you and it's good for all of us if we basically pretend that this thing has authority, if we act as if it does, because if we stop acting like it does, you know, if we call out that the emperor has no clothes, that'll make things worse off. It'll make us all worse off. So it's not really a theory of obligation. The second of these natural duty accounts would be the duty to obey just institutions. And this one I get from the philosopher John Rawls. He says that there is a moral duty of justice um, and that the moral duty of justice requires, quote, each of us to support and to comply with just institutions that exist and apply to us. So again, the the moral duty of justice requires us to support and to comply with just institutions that exist and apply to us. Problems. First, no government, either in the past or today, is 100% just. And so the first question for Rawls' account is, do we only have a duty, this duty of justice, to obey the just parts of government or to only obey government when it's behaving justly? That again doesn't get us anywhere near the scope of political obligation, which says, look, you have a duty to obey, period. Um, and then even if we grant that there are just states, perfectly just states, it doesn't solve what I call the particularity problem. And this is namely, why does the government of the United States apply to me and not the government of Canada? We might just say the, you know, the U.S. government applies to me because I happen to live within its territorial monopoly. But that's a little circular because why does it apply to me? Because I live here. Um, but it's because I live here that it applies to me, right? It's it. We're trying to use its claim of a territorial monopoly, which gets us to uh, the to obedience and the non competition, as a way to justify it having the powers of obedience and non competition. And then, if we ditch that, if we we cut out the circularity, then we end up in a really weird situation where it looks like we have a duty to obey more than one government. That I have a duty to obey the government of Canada when it's being just, and I have a duty to obey and support. That's the important part is you have to support and to comply with. Um, I have a duty to support and comply with the government of the United States when it's being just. And that's, again, not at all like what modern states demand because they demand non-competition. They demand to be the exclusive authority in the political arena over me. And then third, governments actively prevent us from creating new governments. This is the non-competition, even if those governments are more just. So the United States is, we could say on the whole, fairly just, but is by no means perfectly just. And if I have a duty to support and comply with just institutions, as Rawls says, then it would seem that I would have a duty to comply with the most just institution. And if a new just institution was coming into being, especially one that is going to be more just than the ones I currently live under, I would have a duty to support those. And so I'd have a duty to actively rebel 
say, to actively compete. And so we can't get to the specifics of political obligation because this particular theory would seem to counsel us to do precisely the opposite. And then finally, on other obligations, on the notion that there are pre-existing moral duties that might align with the state, this one's pretty easy to dismiss because it's not at all a theory of state authority. This, so this is the idea that you know you shouldn't murder, and the state has a law against murder, and so therefore you should obey the state's law against murder. It sounds good, except you're not really obeying the law against murder. You're obeying, obeying the moral rule to not murder. And in fact, if the state didn't have a law against murder, murder would still be wrong. It would still be wrong for you to commit murder. And if the state passed a law saying murder was acceptable, so we lived in that terrible movie series, The Purge, where one day a year everyone goes gets to go out and commit as much murder as they want to without punishment, that would still be wrong for you to murder, even if the law said you could or if the law said you should do it. So we all have moral obligations that we live under as human beings, and sometimes the law lines up with those, although most of the time the law or legislation has nothing to do with them. It's just about other things that would not be rules we should operate under if the state didn't exist or were different. And so these prior moral obligations, these things certainly create duties for us. We have to follow them, but they don't have anything to do with political obligation because they have nothing to do with their power over us. The, the obligations they create have nothing to do with the specific commands of the state. It's simply another matter entirely, one of basic morality and not of political obligation. What then do we make of all this? If consent and fair play and gratitude and association and natural duty don't get us to political obligation, don't provide adequate theories of why the state can demand obedience and non-competition and financial support, where does that leave politics? Where does that leave our thinking about the role of government and the legitimacy of government? On the one hand, I think at best, at best, these theories would seem to get us to a very minimal state. So even if we accept them, even if we say that they all give rise to obligations, the kind of obligations they support are quite small. Uh, they don't look anything like the modern nation state. They don't look anything like the modern administrative state that pokes its fingers into every aspect of our lives, takes extraordinary amounts of money from us, controls basically everything around us. They don't support that. So on the one hand, we, we could say, well, the, the outcome of this, the conclusion we should draw from this is to have exceedingly limited government. But what if they don't work at all? And I think that's where we end up is that none of them work, even remotely, in getting us to the three central powers of government, the three powers that make a government a government instead of a criminal gang or a crazy guy railing at you on a street corner. What if none of them work? Well, one answer to that would be, well, then we embrace political anarchism. Smash the state, abolish the whole thing, go back to the state of nature. That's certainly an option, although it's one that I think a lot of us find rather troubling. I certainly am not 100% convinced that pure anarchism would lead to the type of world I want to live in. But rejecting political obligations, saying that none of these theories work, doesn't necessarily take us to political anarchism. There's an alternative, and that's philosophical anarchism. Philosophical anarchism is the idea that the state simply isn't justified. It doesn't have the moral right to command us. It doesn't have the moral right to prevent us from setting up opposing governments. It doesn't have the moral right to tax us. But for now, at least, we're going to go along with it because the alternative is even worse. And if we accept that, if we accept philosophical anarchism, 
it ought to change our thinking about government, the very least. Uh, the, the way that I think it ought to change it is to see the state as a remainder. So in, in ethics, there's this notion of the moral remainder, which I think is a powerful one, that says, look, we can find ourselves in situations where we have multiple choices, but every option is a bad one. We have to pick. We have to go one way or the other, but nothing we do is going to be free and clear. Nothing we do is going to be 100% right. And that, that lingering immorality in whatever option we choose, that's the moral remainder. And so we can see the state as a moral remainder. We can say we need to have it. We need to grant an institution this authority. We need to create an institution that can issue commands that we have to obey and that can prevent us from rebelling and that can take money from us in order to support its activities. But at the same time, we recognize that what it's doing is, to one degree or another, immoral, that it is wrong for it to punish us for failure to comply, that it is wrong to prevent us from setting up opposing op institutions or different governments, that it is wrong for it to take money out of all of our paychecks. But we're willing to live with that wrong because the alternative, i.e. having no government at all, would create even more harm, that we would be, say, much poorer or live in a state of constant violence. And so we're willing to put up with this moral wrong in order to have a slightly better world. But that has the effect of, at the very least, shifting the burden that we say no longer is the state this de facto justified institution, that everything it does is legitimate, but instead every time the state tries to do something new, every time it tries to restrict our freedom a little more or take a little more of our resources, we need to question that. We need to say, you need to give us a really good reason why we're going to let you do this thing. You simply saying you want to do it isn't good enough. And it also means that we shouldn't be proud of the state. And I think a way that a lot of us often are, we shouldn't venerate it because if the state is a moral remainder, then the state to, at a deep level, represents a failing on our part. We need it because we weren't good enough to live without it. We weren't good enough to get along without it. So it's a failing on our part, and we shouldn't be proud of our failings. And finally, the state as a remainder means that as, as good people, as people of strong moral character, as people who want to avoid immoralities in our own lives and the world around us, we need to constantly be working to find alternatives, to find moral alternatives, to find ways to do the things that government does that don't demand immoral things, that don't force people to comply with commands that they don't have an obligation to comply with, that don't force people to live under systems that they don't have an obligation to live under, that don't take from people illegitimately, that we need to constantly in our lives seek to shrink that moral harm, to shrink the state to find better ways to live together that don't entail violence, that don't entail forcing our will on others, and don't entail supporting institutions that don't have the moral authority to govern us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to support it, you can do so on Patreon. You can either go to Patreon and search for Aaron Ross Powell, or you can click on the link in the show notes. And next week, we'll have something different.